uh, this chance we have to come together and, and learn more about you. Uh, be with Ben this morning as he delivers your word to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
your name we pray. Amen. So, Peter wrote the book of First uh, Peter, and in this context, he's talking about husbands and he's talking about wives, right? We look back, if we look at last week's uh, text, we saw that, that it was about submission, uh, wives submitting to their husbands. I read this last week, and I want to read it again because we misunderstand when the Bible says submission. He is not calling you to be a doormat to get walked all over. He's not calling you to sit there passively and just do whatever any man who comes along says. That's not what Scripture teaches. So let me read these. As submission isn't agreeing with your husband on all important matters. right? In the context before, the wife was a believer and the husband was an unbeliever. That's a pretty large disagreement. Submission isn't leaving the brain at the wedding altar. Right? The wife is thinking about how she can live her life and share the gospel with her husband in such a way that she might win him to Christ. Submission isn't an effort to avoid changing your husband. She's seeking to win him to Jesus. Submission isn't putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. She's not going to join in sin. Submission isn't getting all of your spiritual strength through your husband. You go to God, the direct source of eternal life. Submission isn't acting in fear. She's not acting because she's scared of what her husband might do. She's encouraged because of God, uh, a godly dependent meekness and courage that flows from her. What submission is, is it's a divine calling of a wife to a joyful and fearlessly honor to affirm her husband's leadership and to help it through uh, according to her gifts. So this means that this submission looks different in everybody's lives. We're all wired differently. So now, this submission that Peter's talking about in this passage comes in the context of 1 Peter, which is, we're living as exiles. We look different than our neighbor. If, that, if nothing else should make us feel less like the world, these two passages do a pretty good job of that. Yet, submission looks odd. Yet, we submit to God in his infinite wisdom. Our lives are not geared to being feared for what's here and now. Peter tells us that, that our submission only makes sense if we understand where our most valuable things are rooted. And Peter tells us our salvation, the most valuable things that we have, the gospel, the glory of Jesus Christ is rooted in heaven where it doesn't fade, where it doesn't rust, where moth and rust weren't going to destroy it. It's rooted with the Lord. If we understand that's where our most valuable possessions are and that's what life is worth living, is living for this gospel that Jesus has given us, then we use everything about our lives to help others grow in Jesus if they're believers or to share the gospel with them so that they can be saved. So he walked through, if we're citizens, we use our citizenship in America not to gain a foothold over other people or to get our political party elected or to keep the other one from being elected. We use our citizenship for the glory of God so that we might share the gospel with people who need it. He talked about slaves, which is another non-confrontational text. Where Peter's saying, you use your personal liberties that we feel entitled to. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, we die to ourselves and we live to Christ. So our personal liberties are now at the, like, to be used by Christ for his glory. And so then we get to this passage. And if we're living for the here and now and just living for what's on earth and not understanding, like our glory, like the Lord's taking us to heaven, the glory of the gospel, then we would never want to do this. It would be far easier to be disobedient to God if all we have in life is what we look at right now and hold to. 
We would say things like, submission is the patriarchy of the ancients. It should be done away with. And it's certainly been abused. But what Peter is saying in this whole letter is that we're living for a living hope, this treasure that is in heaven that's not able to be tarnished, that there's no rust can get to, no moth can get to, that it is secure and that it retains its value. It's not subject to the S&P. It doesn't rise and fall based on whatever comes out of the White House. Its value is linked to Christ. So then we understand that this looks weird to the world, and maybe it looks weird to us if this is the first time we're really walking through this passage. We're kind of like, this is kind of, you know, maybe that part of Christianity that you're crazy got into for a while where you're just standing off a little bit with it. I sometimes think about I've preached far too many sermons and taught far too many lessons that I will ever be able to run for a public office. And this passage is certainly not going to help my appeals to whatever office, I'm probably not going to run. So we get to this verse in verse 7, and Peter's writing in the context of husbands now. Let's remember, much of what Peter was saying last week, wives live with your husbands in such a way that if they're unbelievers, they might be won over by the gospel of Jesus, by one, hearing the gospel, understanding why you're a believer, but then two, seeing that gospel played out in your life, in the context of your home, in this intimate relationship that you have. That He sees the gospel-changed heart that you have. He sees the gospel-changed life that you have, and he might be won over to Jesus. This is in the context of that passage that Peter now says, husbands, and in, uh, uh, in the same way, live with your wives. There's so much for us to cover, and we're just going to rush through a ton. But this is important because men leading godly lives, when, when men lead, when men do what the Bible says to do and lead the way we're supposed to lead, everything under our leadership thrives. That's the way God has made it. But when we don't lead well, it crumbles. And so before we like dive into the nuance of this passage, I want to give you just a biblical picture of what a godly man is supposed to be, and then we can see how Peter is playing on these particular ideas. So if you have your, your Bible, Genesis chapter 2 is where we need to start. This is Adam and Eve. Actually, I want to start in Genesis chapter 1. We're just going to start in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read till we get to 1 Peter 3, 7, and then we'll... Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 and 28. I don't have them up there, Rant, sorry. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So in Genesis 1, we get this very idea of what God is calling... Did you catch who? Male and female to do. Mankind in general. Two things. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And have dominion over the earth. Not dominion in a way where you take advantage of everything and you ruin things, but in a way where you cultivate the earth so that it prospers. I love that the 
Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is, is rapidly becoming some of my favorite passages of Scripture that I find myself going back to over and over again. In Genesis chapter 2, chapter two we have the zoomed-in picture of the sixth day of creation where God created man. And we see that God forms Adam as a body out of the dirt, and then he breathes life into Adam, and Adam comes to life, and, and God sees that it's good. But then we have the first time something's not good in all of the Bible is that Adam is alone. And so God tells Adam, name all of the animals, which is a way for Adam to look at all of the creatures of the earth. He gives all of these animals names, which, which is like why the platypus is named the platypus, because he was at the end. He was running out of ideas. But what Adam sees is he's naming all of these animals as they're not a helper fit for him. It's interesting, because when we think of male and female, we often think different. But when Adam's looking for a helper, he's looking for someone who's similar. And he can't find it in the animal kingdom. And so God does surgery on Adam, knocks him out, takes his rib out. I'm sure you've heard the things. He takes the rib out of the side of man because they're supposed to be together, walk together, do things together in life. He forms Eve. And then as soon as Adam wakes up, this is what he says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23. I didn't put it up there either. Sorry, Rance. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out, for, uh, taken from man. So we see that the first thing that draws Adam to Eve is not their difference, but their sameness. Both created in the image of God, both equal in value, equal in worth, equal in dignity, but what the Bible teaches us is that they are distinct in roles. That men are called to do things that women aren't called to do. And women are called to do things that men aren't called to do. And so they're working in the garden. They're being fruitful and multiplying, as we'll see quickly. They're having dominion over the garden. And then we see at the end of of verse 2, this is why man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. We see marriage. Before the fall. Marriage. That's an important point. Satan hasn't entered in. There's been no temptation. They're in the perfect state with the Lord before the fall. Married. And it's important for us to recognize that Satan does not come in to tempt Adam until he's married. That it's marriage that Satan is trying to attack. And he comes to Eve, not the the leader, Adam, the the husband who's supposed to be protecting all of the creation and, and subduing it and keeping the bad creatures out and helping her grow. It's Satan who goes to Eve, not to Adam. He's undoing what God has done in marriage. And so what we see is the fall where, where Eve takes the fruit and eats it and Adam eats the fruit too is just as much Adam's fault as it is Eve's. We've said it before. If you see a snake in a garden, cut its head off. If we go to Ephesians uh, chapter 5, we see all of that in Genesis. But if we flip over to Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives us what is probably one of the most... Uh, complete pictures of what a marriage is supposed to be. I do have these verses for you. Uh, Let's start in Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. We pick up this idea of submission again. But who's submitting to who? It's this mutual submission. Now, because we have Bibles and they're very helpful with chapters and verse numbers and titles on top of our paragraphs, but all of those things were not in the original languages. 
So they're helpful for us because I can say go to 1 Peter 3, 7 and you can flip through your Bible and find 1 Peter 3, 7. But they harm us when we're trying to read scripture because if there's a chapter change or if there's like a title, like a break on those things, our minds will automatically disconnect those passages. No, 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 no. Like it's helpful. If you want to change your Bible readings, like just keep reading through. Don't stop at those to look at them. And and it's mind opening to a lot of things. And this is one of the passages that does this. So Paul says, submit to one another, have this mutual submission. And then the next verse, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now the church submits to Christ, so also are wives to submit to their husbands in everything. Do you see why it's important to read those together? There's this mutual submission, and then Paul says, now women, here's the specific way that you submit to your husbands. Sometimes uh, people don't like that it says the husband is the head of the wife, but that's a beautiful picture. What does the head do when the body's hurting? Heals it. If I stub my toe, my head doesn't go, well, that's the toe's fault. It just needs to deal with it. I cry. We keep our regularly scheduled appointment with Dr. Evans, and we get it fixed. So What Paul is saying is not that the husband is the head of the wife to rule over her and to lord over her so that it's at her expense. What he's saying is you're the head of the wife to take care of the rest of the body. And then he compares it to Christ and the church. If Christ is the head of the church, he takes care of the church. So submit to that authority. Again, not being walked over, but willingly honoring your spouse. And then we see the husband's love for his wife in Ephesians chapter 5, verses uh, 25. Husband, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's pause there for just a second. Do we understand, men, what this is calling us to do? This is calling us to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And how does Christ love the church? He dies for her. Which means more than physical death. I've met few, like, this is where guys like to clean up. I take a bullet for my wife. You should be able to. But what you should also be able to do is die to your personal wants and die to your personal desires and die to your personal sin so that your spouse can thrive. To make her holy, cleansing her with the washing uh, of the water by the word. We forget this verse. What Paul is telling husbands is you're the spiritual leader of the family, so you help your wife grow in the Lord. Make her holy. Pray for her all the time. Encourage her all the time. Read the Bible with her all the time. If she's an unbeliever, pray for herself. If she is a believer, disciple her. Verse 27, he presented this splendor of the church. Uh, he, presented, he did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love your wives as their own bodies. Who loves his wife, uh, who loves his wife, loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but provides for it and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. So we are members of the body. For this reason, man will leave his father and mother and be joined to the wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. I'm talking about Christ and the church. So we see this picture of husbands loving their wives by doing all of these things that they're supposed to do, being willing to die for her in just about every aspect of his life, encouraging her, challenging her to grow in her faith in Jesus. Because that's what Christ does for the church. He dies for the church, and then he presents himself with a pure bride. 
The bride of the church is the church. The bride of Christ is the church. And Paul does something very clever here. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit had inspired him to write these things. He roots this whole section not in his cultural context, but in Genesis chapter 2. He quotes uh, Genesis chapter 2, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So what Paul's saying is culture is going to shift and culture is going to change and things will be in style and things will be out of style, but this isn't based on his culture. This is based on the way God set marriage up before the fall. All of the problems and all of the issues that we have within marriage are a result of sin and a result of the fall. That those, this shouldn't be cast aside. This should be the goal that we should strive to. And then he summarizes, to, to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself and the wife is to respect her husband. He does another beautiful thing there. Wives need love. And the love he's talking about is not just this fickle emotional love, but this commitment that even when times are bad and even when times are good and even when her hair's not done and even when she smells worse than you do, you love her no matter what. But did you catch what he calls wives to do to husbands? He doesn't say, and wives love your husbands. He says, wives respect your husbands. Husbands will feel that love. If there's honor and their respect. This is all tied into a pre-fallen marriage. This isn't out of date. This is the standard that God sets. And so if we look at those two passages and we understand, okay, this is what God says. There's a purpose and there's a reason. We, we did deacon qualifications that not that long ago. If you look at every passage of Scripture that talks about the qualifications for a pastor, the qualifications for a deacon, what you will find in all of those, there's some things relating to how they lead their families. That it's a litmus test. That when you're looking for people to lead the church, when you're looking for people to serve, that's what deacon means, right? Or, or pastor, which is like an overseer, a preacher, a proclaimer. It's great if we can tell jokes. It's great if we look good. You got that. What's more important is that they can lead the church. If they can't lead their family in Christ, how can they lead a church? We look at it with deacons. If deacons can't serve their family to the Lord, then how can they serve the church? It doesn't mean we can save our kids. We can't save our kids. I can get my kids to say that they're believers, but I can't change their heart. Only God can do that. What we're looking for is lives and households that have the gospel so rooted and so centered that it would be the kids' outright rejection of the gospel, not because the parents, uh, the, 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 the husband or the wife, denied teaching in those things. All of that is the context for what masculinity means when we get to this passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And so it says this. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives. Let's just pause there. That's the first thing Peter's telling us. Be present. Your marriage is more important than your career and your kids. Say it again. This is why I can't run for public office. Your marriage is more important than your career and your kids. You don't enter into a covenant with your boss at your career. And when your kids are born, there is this kind of parental commitment to your kids. But the goal of parenting is to raise these little disciples so that we can send them out into the world. It's not for them to stay in our basements their whole lives. 
But your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your wife, is a covenantal commitment that you make. There's two institutions that God tells us to covenant with, the church and your spouse. So your marriage is more important than your career, and your marriage is more important than your kids. And it's healthy for your kids, right? I'm not undermining the role of our kids. Your kids will thrive best if your marriage is what's the priority in your life. If they see mom and dad working through things and parenting together and growing in the Lord together, your kids will thrive under that kind of leadership. But if there's chaos, if there's dysfunction, if there's things that are pushing against each other there, your kids are going to struggle. It's like God knows what he's doing. But it also means that, men, we're called to do more than just work hard. We're called to do more than just provide monetarily for our families. Far too often we'll say things like, well, I pay the bills and I put a roof over the head and I put food on the table. And certainly that's a part of this calling that God gives to us is to provide for our wives and to provide for our kids. But it's more than that. It's a calling to give your time to them. Your attention, your focus, your leadership, your love go to them as well. The goal is not to coexist with your spouse. She's more than a roommate. She's more than just somebody who co-parents with you so that you can have a break every now and then. She's in a covenant with you. So you live with your spouse. It doesn't say live with your girlfriend It doesn't say live with your boyfriend. It doesn't say live with your roommate. It doesn't say do whatever you want and call it that way. It says live with your spouse. Don't settle and compromise marriage. This is a battle that Christians have to fight. Because marriage is important. It's this covenantal commitment that God gives to us. And he tells Paul in Ephesians 5, if you remember, that this is the mystery of this, is that it was referring to Christ and the church. So in Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve were formed and they marry, God already had in his mind Jesus Christ living a perfect life, dying a death for your sins, atoning for your sins. and live, all The gospel was in mind when God created marriage. It's meant to be an illustration of the gospel. So we can't water it down. It's too important for us which is also why marriage is attacked. It's attacked subtly, it's attacked blatantly, but it's the purpose and the reason why it is. We have to stay strong. So live with your spouse. Uh, Verse 7, part B. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. As a general rule of thumb, men are physically stronger than women. There are some cases where women can be stronger than men. I ran cross-country in college, and we did not do weightlifting. We would work on our core, but the girls who pole vaulted, threw shot, threw discus, threw hammer, threw whatever they were throwing, lifted. And I promise you, they could outlift me. It was embarrassing. If they drop a dumbbell, I couldn't be like chivalry and like, let me help you get that. It was just there. However, the guys who are doing pole vault and javelin and throwing things at whatever they're throwing things at, they could lift more than those girls. This is what Peter's getting at. You live with your spouse in an understanding way 
as with a weaker partner. Peter is recognizing that men over the course of history have typically used our strength to uh, abuse or, or put our thumb on women and press them down. We've not used our strength as a way to uplifting and to subduing, to keeping dominion over, over life, to ruling our families in a way that they would thrive under our leadership. Instead, we've used our physical powers to, to oppress them, to hurt them, to hinder what they're supposed to, to abuse them. And what Peter is saying is you ought to never use your authority. You ought to never use your physical powers to do that. So, so men, everything we have at our physical, like we should never hit a woman. We should never abuse a woman physically, emotionally, spiritually. We should never do any of those things. And if you are being abused, hear me. Come and talk to me. Come and, and grab a deacon. Let's get you to a safe spot. We believe in the gospel, and we believe that what the gospel does is it protects the vulnerable. I'm not the most physically intimidating person, but I will beat somebody down with words in a way that they'll remember it. Come and talk to me and we'll get you to a safe spot. So when you live with your wives in an understanding way, this also means that you understand your leadership, your position is to know your wife better than anybody else knows your wife. That you become an expert in her. What's her biggest fear? What's her greatest joy? What gets her excited? What drags her down? What has the Lord been teaching her? How have you encouraged her? How has the Lord encouraged her? What's her her favorite movie? What's her favorite color? What's her favorite Disney? All of these things. You be an expert in your wife. This hard for guys. Let me tell you the secret. Just ask a bunch of questions. Because what ends up happening is times change. Tastes change. And so then ask, well, why did your taste change? What's happening here? Know your wife better than anybody else knows her in an understanding way. Because the better you know her, the better you can lead her to Jesus. She will have unique vulnerabilities that you as the husband can help grow her in the gospel with. 1 Peter 3c. Showing them honor as co-heirs in the grace of life. The Bible is the only ancient text of literature that I'm aware of that elevates women to the status of human being. Often one of the critiques of Scripture is that it just is misogynistic and it puts women down. But if you look at Scripture, there are women in the genealogy of Jesus. We have entire Old Testament books named after women, Ruth and Esther. We have uh, women in Genesis that we're called to emulate, Sarah. It elevates women. It gives value and worth and dignity because they're co-created by God in the image of God. It's not like men are made in the masculine image of God and then women. It's not like men are made in the strong image of God and then women are made in the submissive. No, we're both made in the image of God together. And we're the only creatures that have been created that are made in this way. Our labradoodles are not. the only ancient book that elevates women to the status of co-heirs that you inherit something as a daughter you have worth and dignity and value and you ought to be treated as if you're a co-heir 
So if you both are saved, the husband and wife, then you grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the middle of a fight that you keep having over and over and over again, you may argue, but you also know that you're in a covenant and you're not going anywhere and she's not going anywhere either. And that you're both recipients of grace and that you both need this grace. And if you both, that you need grace from Jesus and you've received grace from Jesus, then it's also easier, not always easy, but easier to extend that grace to your spouse too. That it's not about defeating your spouse. It's not about winning. It's about being together, honoring them, having dignity and worth and value. So men, you respect your wives. You honor your wives. And this looks different for different people. Some wives like to be joked around with. They feel loved when you kind of pick on them and show some attention. Or that's what I think Morgan likes. I don't know. Others do not. And so you respect them when they say, I don't like that. And you don't do it. First Peter 3, 7, D. So that your prayers will not be hindered. This is serious. If what Peter is telling us is that our relationship with God can be hindered upon if we're treating our wives right or not is important. So does God hear your prayers? I mean, this is serious. Like, that's our relationship with Jesus Christ. We know that when Christ died, he was resurrected three days later. He was on the earth. He showed himself to many people, and then he ascended. Like in bodily form, he ascended. And so right now, at this moment, he's sitting at the right hand of God, and he's interceding on our behalf. This is why when we pray, we say, in Jesus' name, amen. Because Jesus is the one who's hearing our prayers and interceding to the Father on our behalf. And so if we believe that, and we trust that God hears our prayers, but then we hear a passage like this, it's like, okay, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. It means our relationship with God is at stake when we're working on our marriages. Now understand, this isn't like get your marriage right so you can get right with God. This is if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's going to impact the most important personal relationships that you have. So does God hear your prayers? Maybe the question we should ask is, are you praying? I mean, there's an assumption Peter is saying here is that you're praying for your spouse, for your kids, for your family, for your church, for your community. See, oftentimes we get to texts like these and they get preached or they get taught and a lot of times it feels like this. Women, you're princesses. In fact, that's what Sarah means. And so you're doing great, good job, keep going, high fives and lattes for everybody. And then you get to men, and it's men, you're terrible. You're a failure, get your act together, or Jesus is going to come down and punch you square in the face. Quit being dumb, grow up. No, that's not what the text is calling us to do. Do you know that Jesus calls the church his bride? So he was not married. He's not married, but he calls the church his bride. And so what has he done for his bride? Well, he's purified them. And he's purified us in righteousness. He died so that we might live. He takes care of our biggest enemy. 
And our biggest enemy isn't the Democratic Party. Our biggest enemy isn't the IRS. And hear me, our biggest enemy isn't Hermley. Our biggest enemy is the sin that stains you and I's hearts and that so deeply impacts us that it ruins not only our relationship with one another, but it hinders our relationship with God. And so Jesus is the ultimate man, 100% God, 100% man, puts on flesh of a male. There's something to that. And God the Father is called God the Father, not God the Mother. There's something to that. And the Holy Spirit is not an it. He is a him. That's his, like, I go to the Greek with you, but just you trust me on it. He's a him. He's not an it. There's something to that. But there is this leadership that takes place, this spiritual leadership that God has given to men for this purpose. So it's... Uh, It's as a husband of this bride, the church, that Jesus rescues her and he takes her. He takes us, if we're Christians, and he makes us pure. We see in Revelation that there's this wedding ceremony that's going to happen. Where the bride, the church, is presented in all of her splendor. And do you know how the groom comes in? He's riding a white horse. He's got all of this imagery with him. But the imagery I want to point out to you is his robe is stained with blood. And it's stained with blood because it's the blood of Jesus that allows us to be saved. It's the blood of Jesus that takes care of our sin, that takes care of death, that takes care of disease because Jesus the groom is on the way. So husbands and men, listen, you don't have that kind of power. I don't have that kind of power. But if you're a gospel-believing man, what you do has an influence over the leader. Like what, what you do for a living in the areas that you have leadership, your sphere of influence matters. So your community, your career, your family, your spouse, your personal life, all those areas that God has given you as a sphere of influence to be under your leadership, lead them to Jesus as best as you can. Lead in love, not in abuse. Don't be passive. Be active. We walked through Genesis, and almost every time there's a sin that happens there, it's because a man was passive in the story. Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, keep going. Noah. So let me help you with some practical ways. We do a men's breakfast here every uh, first Sunday of every month at 8 a.m. So next week, we'll do a men's breakfast. Come eat with us. We laugh. We talk. Mr. Jones makes this. Uh, it's, got, it's a casserole with gravy. I am so I'm hungry now, and I'm not going to eat until then. We've got two different men's conferences this spring that you can sign up to go to. Calvary Baptist Church and Snyder's putting one on. They made a terrible mistake, and they asked me to preach uh, one of the breakout sessions. So I've got no fear here. We're going to open up the Bible. We're just going to hammer on some guys and, and see what happens. But it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, Circle 6 Baptist Camp down the road is doing another men's conference that I'm helping to plan with another guy, and it's going to be phenomenal. If you remember Russell Routon, who's come and led worship for us, his son's going to lead worship there. We're going to have expository preaching. We're going to open the Bible and hear it. If you've never been in a room filled with men singing the gospel, it's a life-changing thing. Uh, we used to go to a conference that canceled it. It was about 12 to 12, uh, 12 to 13,000 men who would gather together, most of us pastors, and we would sing. And they didn't have a band. They had a guy who would play the piano, and he would start with the note, he would play it, and then we would sing hymns, and it was men, and it would just be chat. Like, it was just this phenomenal deal. I, I wish we could all partake. There's going to be a lot of cool things to do there, too. We've modified an AR-15 to shoot Coke cans. There's not a lot spiritual about that, but it'll be fun. So go to one of those. 
Go to both of them. Read your Bibles. Pray for your family. Be active in the local church. If you will do those three things, you will be shocked what God will do with you over the course of the next year, two, three, and four. Your wives have a difficult calling. Their calling is to submit to their husband, but you have an equally difficult calling to make their lives easy and joyful to submit to your leadership. So it's not a burden for them. So seek to understand your spouse, never abusing her as physically weaker because you understand that Jesus has infinitely more physical power than you and I do and could abuse us quickly and easily. It doesn't. Honor your spouse as the co-heir of grace because Jesus chose to reject that honor rightfully that is his to come down to us and humble himself to take, our life, or take his life on the cross. Pray unhindered prayers for your wife because Jesus did not stay dead. He rose to the grave. He ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God right now listening to our prayers and he's interceding for us on behalf of the Father. Women, wives, you are not passive doormats. You're not to be just giving to every want and desire and need to the husband or the men in your life. You are covert spies that God has placed and scattered around. Put in situations in places where you can make disciples of your spouses, where you can encourage him, where you can push him to grow. If he isn't saved, the most likely way that he will be saved is by watching what the gospel does to your life. That's not an easy calling. And I understand that often your life can feel overlooked and unseen, and it's hard to do the things in life that is a lot of work and never noticed. That it's just mundane, and it's just over and over again, and it's really easy to ask questions like, what in the world does the kingdom of God have to do with me doing the dishes? What does the kingdom of God have to do when all I do all day is just fold laundry for kids that are just going to throw it in the hamper, clean or dirty anyway? Ladies, there is more to your life than that. In those mundane and normal tasks, know that your husband and your kids are watching. That you have a body of believers in Ira Baptist covenanted with you that are praying for you, that are caring for you. And your life isn't perfect, and it's not going to be perfect on this side of heaven. But you aren't the Savior your kids need. You aren't the Savior your spouse needs. All you have to do is point to Jesus. Lean into the gospel. Read your Bible, pray, be active in the church, and watch how those things change your heart and change your husband's. For the singles, never married, divorced, widows, widowers, passages like this can make you often feel like maybe God has forgotten you. Or maybe the church has forgotten you. This can't be further from the truth. God sees you, and you have a unique and a powerful way of using you. Some of the greatest people in the Bible were single. John the Baptist, who Jesus called the greatest prophet who ever lived, was never married. The apostle Paul, who wrote most of the letters in the New Testament, was never married. Let's not forget Jesus. Never married. God in the flesh, creator of all, sustainer of all, the sacrificial lamb of God, the great high priest who offered himself as a sacrifice that was so good that no other sacrifice ever needed to be made, who has been resurrected and is with the right hand of God right now. And he will come down to claim what is his own. He will fully defeat sin, fully defeat death, fully defeat Satan, fully defeat the demons. He was never married. Do you know that the local church is called to care for widows and orphans? 
You have a purpose and you belong here too. Read your Bible. Pray. Be active in the local church and see how the Lord grows you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you, God, that we can come across a text of Scripture that's hard. That's challenging. But God, when we see the fruit of what your word does, when we can see the big picture of how it impacts our hearts and our minds and our souls, we can understand and we can recognize that your way is better than ours. So God, I pray for the believers who are here that this would be a message that would encourage them that it would convict where there needs to be conviction, that there would be encouragement where there needs to be encouragement, and that you would move hearts and that you would change people. God, for any unbelievers who are here this morning, I don't know how, but I pray this message would fall on their hearts, that it would poke and that it would prod and that it would cause them to just stir, to not settle, and to understand that there's more to life than just living for themselves.